Why pay your hard-earned money to join an organization that fought tooth and nail for a government-run health care system? One that scripted portions of White House speeches behind closed doors to ensure the passage of the Affordable Care Act. The organization that stood against tax cuts for middle-class Americans and small business owners. You know, that's AARP. Join AMAC instead, the conservative alternative. AMAC offers the same kinds of money-saving benefits of AARP without the liberal agenda. Become an AMAC member right now at amac.us slash buck. AMAC fights for your values, protecting our borders by enforcing common sense immigration laws, supporting small business, and standing up for your individual God-given freedoms. AMAC is the way to go. Stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. The benefits are great, but the cause is even greater. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. AMAC is better, better for you, better for America. This This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Coming to you live from the New York branch of the Freedom Hut, the only Freedom Hut that exists in DeCamio and Cuomo's New York. Thank you for taking this Friday night to to hang with us here in the New York Freedom Hut. I've guest hosted before, but uh, in case you didn't listen, I was senior contributor, am a senior contributor of The Federalist, a senior fellow at the London Center, and you can find me on Twitter at BH Weingarten. I'd also urge you to subscribe to my Big Ideas with Ben Weingarten podcast for in-depth interviews with great thinkers and doers, folks just like Buck Sexton. And I want to start by thanking Buck for giving me the opportunity to fill in here on a busy Friday night. You know, Fridays are supposed to be the slow days, but that's when all the news actually gets dropped now in this 24-7 media cycle. So let's get right to it. I want to talk about three major themes today. One of them, national sovereignty. Two, sabotage. Three, Socialism, the three S's for tonight's episode. The border wall is the big story of the day and President Trump's emergency declaration, and we'll play some audio from that in case you missed it during the, your busy work day from the Rose Garden. And, and he laid out sort of his case for why there needs to be an emergency declaration declared on top of the funding that was received in the recently negotiated continuing resolution. And, and let's talk about that continuing resolution for a second. You know, we're more than two years into this presidency. Republicans had the presidency, the House, the Senate, and the House and Senate did nothing to advance the president's agenda, really, when it came to immigration, period, full stop. The fact that it ever had to come to this, this continuing resolution, 1,200 pages released at 3 a.m. in the morning, 10 pages of which were then released after the fact, congressmen themselves didn't even know where to go for the full bill of text is absurd. And it's really a slap in the face to the American people. Over six, About 63 million people voted for this president. And the fact that there was insufficient border wall funding the first two years, and now you have to deal with this basically phony negotiation where the president had to grit his teeth and say, I accept this bill, but I really don't like this bill. It, it's a travesty. And you as an American should take it as a slap in the face that your supposed representatives, that this is the best that they could come up with. 
So, so what was in this bill? The bill is about more than the bill. The bill is representative of the disdain that our political establishment has for you and I. $328 billion continuing resolution with a measly $1.4 billion for the border wall. Now, $1.4 billion is a lot, but in context of the federal budget in a given year where the, the federal budget is well over $3 trillion, probably close to $4 trillion at this point, it's nothing. It's nothing. For something as fundamental as territorial integrity, the job of the government, protect the homeland. That's number one. Peace and prosperity. In order to have peace, you have to have a secure border. So $328 billion, $1.4 for the wall, $1.375. Of course, there are strings attached to this $1.375. And, and consider, by the way, the strings attached to this versus the lack of strings attached to all of the other asinine things that come out of Washington hidden deep within these bills that you'll never know about because they are 1,200 pages. So first of all, this wall funding, $1.4 billion, it's limited to the Rio Grande sector. It's not just limited to a 55-mile area along the southern border in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas and restricted, so you can't use it in a series of other areas that they lay out, other areas which need secure fencing as well. But there are two strings attached that really just, it just, again, it's more than disdain. It's just spitting in your face. It's like a big joke that you can have a 1,200-page bill and have a couple provisions like these. Section 224A, I'll read it verbatim. None of the funds provided by this act may be used by the Secretary of Homeland Security to place in detention, remove, refer for a decision whether to initiate removal proceedings or initiate removal proceedings against a sponsor, potential sponsor, or member of a household of a sponsor or potential sponsor of an unaccompanied alien child. Let me simplify that for you because there's a lot of sponsors in there and this is typically lawyerly in the way that it's crafted. This is a magnet for folks coming here and not being deportable. That's what this is. You come with an unaccompanied alien child, referred to by the acronym UAC frequently, you can't be thrown out. Think about what the incentive is there then. Of course you want to be a sponsor or a potential sponsor or a member of a household of a sponsor or a potential sponsor of an unaccompanied alien child because per Section 224A, you can't be placed in detention, removed, or referred to a decision for a decision whether to initiate removal proceedings. You can't be deported. That's what it's saying. Here's another piece of text layered into the bill. Section 232A, prior to use of any funds made available by this act for the construction of physical barriers within the city limits of any city or census-designated place, Department of Homeland Security and the local elected officials of such a city or census-designated place shall confer and seek to reach mutual agreement regarding the design and alignment of physical barriers within that city or the census-designated place. Translation, local officials are going to be the ones to determine where the wall goes up and what kind of wall it is. Design and alignment of physical barriers. And oh, by the way, it just so happens, my understanding that those areas, those municipalities, jurisdictions in the Rio Grande Valley, well, they happen, of, of course, be pretty much all blue districts. So what do you think is going to happen then with that funding? You know, there's other elements of this as well. There's potentially a doubling of the amount of people in the capped 
guest worker program, HB2 program, and you know, we can talk about that. And I guarantee you there are about a thousand other things layered into this bill that would make you and I go crazy. What it represents, again, not just a slap in the face to us and a slap in the face to the president, but a total dereliction of duty, a total lack of sincerity, of care, of faithfulness to us as the citizen. You know, what the wall itself represents, it's not about the physical barrier. Yes, of course, a physical barrier is necessary as one element of having truly secure borders, because the first thing is secure borders at home, and then we can worry about the trillions of dollars that have been spent overseas that haven't necessarily made us any safer. But it starts with homeland, protecting the homeland. What does a wall represent? It represents national sovereignty, priority number one, essentially, of a government. And in the Constitution, it talks about the need for the government to protect us from invasion, which we essentially have and which the emergency declaration today represents. It represents faithfulness to the citizenry. It represents strength. It represents a pact with us that government respects us and they they understand that we are the number one responsibility. We, the people. And if not, they should all be thrown out of office. That's what the wall represents for us, for the left, for the Robert Francis O'Rourke's of the world, because I will refer, refuse to refer to him by that moniker, the Beto moniker. For folks like him, he says, let's tear down the walls that exist today. How would that work out for the country exactly? You know, the left makes the argument, it's immoral. A wall is immoral. Well, what could be more moral than protecting the life and limb of citizenry? Okay, survival is mortal especially survival from some of the worst people in the world, these drug traffickers and incidentally terrorists and the terrorist groups that work with the drug traffickers and child traffickers to get into this country, cause lots of crime, billions of dollars in damages, all the associated cultural costs. They say that's immoral. Okay. The wall for us represents a citizenry. For the left, it represents an affront to multiculturalism and a lack of concern that they have for the citizenry because they believe that everyone, that there should be no borders, that we're all the same. There's no differences in cultures. Well, except that they know that their culture is superior to deplorable culture. What they really care about at the end of the day, what this is really all about, of course, is the fact that the left wants the country overrun. They, at their core, believe in some of them believe in open borders because ideologically that's really where they are and and they are really that deluded to think that there is no difference between different peoples everywhere and that's you know citizenship is something that should be treated cheaply and taken lightly and then for the others it is more cynical and political and and a little bit later today we're going to talk about one of the ways in which even absence and amnesty in this country Mass illegal immigration to this country actually gives the left substantial political power already full stop. So before there is down the road, presumably some kind of mass amnesty, the way that things are trending in our political class, already there is power to having our borders overrun. And that's really the point, ultimately, is that this is a cynical power play from the left. It's sort of it's the old Cloward Piven overload the system to force a change, overload the system with illegal aliens, overload the system with government spending, put as much power within the state as possible, dole out as much largesse as possible. It all works in their favor if you're a progressive because a bigger state means more power for you. That's where the left is right now. But 
those on our side, quote unquote, we're talking about a percentage of a percentage that really actually believes in faithfulness to the Constitution and and faithfulness and fidelity to the American people and, again, to national sovereignty and territorial integrity and citizenship itself. Citizenship itself is not a cheap word. It's something to be held in very high esteem. And for those immigrants who came here legally and actually had to work for it, as opposed to spitting in the face of those who are just abrogating the system, they value that citizenship. A lot of times, probably more highly than folks who were born here and take it for granted, I'm sorry to say. The reality of the situation is that there is a bipartisan establishment, and that bipartisan establishment believes essentially in open borders, some of them to different degrees. It's open borders on the left and on the right. What is it? It's cheap labor. That's sad. On both sides, it should be an affront to every concerned American. It really should. If we could actually go to clip 10, Mark Meadows talking about the border wall, he, he speaks a little bit about this. This is a president who has performed over and over and over again. He's moved the embassy uh, to Jerusalem. He's brought back jobs uh, from China to America. The economy is roaring. We've got uh, a number of people that were hostages brought home. Every time they say he won't do it, he does do it. He's going to do it this time. I'm confident of that. I believe that he will take executive action to make sure he gets the dollars that he needs to make sure that that wall gets built. Congress won't do his job, quite frankly. We could have done a lot better. We could have given him the $5.7 billion that he requested. But instead, he's having to uh, embark on a three-step process that I, I applaud. I mean, you know, I can tell you that I wish that the executive branch would have less ability to do things on their own. That was House Freedom Caucus Chair Mark Meadows, and of course he called for executive action and he got it. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show, 844-900-BUCK, that's 2825, 844-900-2825. Follow me on Twitter at BH Weingarten, and apologize about that. The guys behind the glass played a little joke on me before the break. We now have the Mark Meadows clip. You've heard him. I wholeheartedly agree with Mark Meadows. I, I suspect a lot of you do too. No one wants the executive to have to have the authority or to have to take a measure like the president is taking. And it's clear that he was very begrudgingly taking this measure as well. In fact, in comments today, he sort of went over why a national emergency here is merited and then also why he knows it's going to get caught up in litigation. If we could go to clip six to Trump talking about the national emergency in the wall. We're going to be signing today and registering national emergency. And it's a great thing to do because we have an invasion of drugs, invasion of gangs, invasion of people, and it's unacceptable. I could do the wall over a longer period of time. I didn't need to do this, but I'd rather do it much faster. And I don't have to do it for the election. I've already done a lot of wall for the election, 2020. And the only reason we're up here talking about this is because of the election. That was the president speaking at the Rose Garden this afternoon, explaining, justifying the need to call for a national emergency here. Let me say what the real national emergency is in America. It's that our leaders don't represent us. The media, the left, they love they love to talk about, 
oh, dictatorship, unprecedented, violation of norms. They are actually the ones who are violating the norms here because they don't care about securing the country. We spend, I mentioned before, we've spent trillions of dollars overseas on engagements. And you'd be very hard pressed. I'd be interested to hear from some of you a bit later tonight. What has been the actual outcome of Afghanistan? You know, we're there 17, 18 years, approaching 20 years. Maybe there will be some kind of negotiation to get out of there. Can you define what are the three seminal achievements of our time in Afghanistan? What about in Iraq? It's pretty clear that Iraq has become, in many ways, a proxy for Iran. It should have been a counterbalance for it. Now it's a proxy for it. So we've wasted all of this blood and treasure overseas, and I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate things that we need to be doing overseas because I'm as ardent a counter-jihadist as you'll find, and I believe in taking it to the enemy when they pose a threat to U.S. national interests. But it starts at home, and if we don't have home right, then everything else is, is in big trouble. Big trouble. So what did the president do with this invocation of his authority under the National Emergency Act. Essentially, he was able to identify, according to the White House, eight up to $8.1 billion available to build the border wall post-declaration with additional funds having been reprogrammed. And so there's $601 million from the Treasury Forfeiture Fund. There's up to $2.5 billion from the DOD funds, Department of Defense funds, transferred for support for counter-drug activities under Title 10 of the U.S. Code, Section 284. There's up to $3.6 billion reallocated from the Department of Defense military construction projects under the President's Declaration of a National Emergency, Title 10, U.S. Code, Section 2808. And we'll talk about the legal wranglings a bit later. Allow me to, allow me to have the President explain how he thinks this is going to go down legally. Quip 7, if you would, guys. We will have a national emergency, and we will then be sued, and they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit, uh, even though it shouldn't be there, and we will possibly get a bad ruling, and then we'll get another bad ruling, and then we'll end up in the Supreme Court, and hopefully we'll get a fair shake, and we'll win in the Supreme Court. There you have it. I think that's pretty wise legal analysis from the president right there. In fact, the legal challenges are already starting to fly. This afternoon or this morning even, it might have been reported that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Joaquin Castro are going to introduce legislation to try to block the president's use of a national emergency here. And actually, the ACLU has tweeted as well that they're going to be attacking it. And some folks are pointing to comments from the president later on during this Rose Garden address where he talks about, you know, I didn't want to do it this way. We didn't need to do it this way, but we have to do it this way. And of course, his words are going to be parsed by the Ninth Circuit, as he mentioned. And we will get into the legal wranglings of this. I do think it will become very clear throughout this episode that legally the president is on very sound footing. And we can talk about executive power, separation of powers and the like. But this is more a political question in reality than a legal question. And it is sad that it has come to it. At this point, this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. Call in, lines are open. 844 900 Buck. That's 844 900 Buck 2825. 844 900 2825. We'll be right back and talk about the census citizenship question. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Lines are open 844 900 2825. 844 900 
888-253-2825. Follow me on Twitter at BH Weingarten. All right, we've been talking about the president's national emergency, sovereignty, border wall funding, and the like. Let's hear what you have to say. Let's go to the phone, starting with Dr. Rick from Silver Spring, Maryland. Hello, Dr. Rick. Hi. Yes, hi. Good evening. And I tell you, I could not be more upset about this whole matter. Um, Buck's show last night, I think he did a great job talking about all the problems with the bill. Um, I think it, you know, I agree with him. I think it does more harm than good. And I kind of wish the president had said, this thing stinks. I'm not going to say yes. And I'm going to shut down the government again. But I want to get your take on it, Ben. Yeah, you know, my opinion of it is this. The bill cuts both ways. Obviously, there are provisions in there that the incentive structure is terrible from the perspective of sovereignty, and it cuts against the president's agenda, which is part of the reason that I've argued that, look, even in getting this $1.4 billion, which is a fraction of the $5.7 billion, which is a fraction of the $25 billion, that even with that, they had to fight him tooth and nail through the shutdown and then put in all, all of these potential poison pills, these landmines, as they've been described by some within the bill. So... Again, I think it's a reflection of Congress and and a smack in the face of 63 million Americans. Now, in terms of what would the president's best strategy have been in this scenario, there are a lot of folks who are advocating for maybe a one or two week continuing resolution to allow folks to actually examine the 1,200 pages. God forbid we took more than two or three days, 72 hours to look at what was actually in the thing. Although, of course, we could have all guessed that there would be things in the bill that were egregious. I suspect that if you were in those White House conversations about strategy here, the reality was that they said, given the calendar and where we are relative to 2020 and how long legal challenges would potentially take and how much time has already been wasted on this, that this was probably the end of the line and we'll take the $1.4 billion because it's better than nothing else. We'll live to fight another day. We'll get the incremental funding to get to over $5.7 billion, potentially all in. There will be a court fight. Hopefully, the, the, the bulldozers will get rolling well before Election Day 2020. Although, it's worth noting that the president talked about 2020 and the political element of this. And the, the press will say, you know, they love to say, oh, this is Trump's vanity project. It's not Trump's vanity, pro- vanity project. It's that he made a promise to the American people that represents all those things that I mentioned in my monologue fidelity and faithfulness to the Constitution and and territorial integrity, and the fact that it is imperative that we get a handle on our homeland. So th- that that's really my opinion of it. Do you have any follow-up to that, Dr. Rick? Well, I'm just so very frustrated with the political ruling class. Like you said, we had control of House and Senate and the president. They could have gotten this done. Clearly, they didn't want to get this done. And um, I, I just, you know, the... the the fact that they're so disconnected from the people on this, you know, I, I would love for the president to say, I'm building it. I'm using the Army Corps of Engineers. Sue me. Stop me. And just build it. Um, and, and, you know, to, you know to, to be damned with, you know, let them try to, to stop it. You know, I just, I'm so that frustrated. Well, well thanks so much for the call. And, and, and I think we're all frustrated at our so-called representatives. That's really what they are. They represent us. They claim every midterm election and, and, you know, then for the senators when their races are up. But uh, it's a con, essentially. It really is. And again, you, know, you look at it, you have 
basically the House Freedom Caucus, or at least a you know disproportionate percentage of the House Freedom Caucus that actually believes in the things that they run on, and you have a handful of senators, and that is pretty much it. And it's a very it's 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 a it's a small minority that speaks for the silent majority in this country. All right, let's go to Charles in Boston. Charles, you are on the Buck Sexton yeah, Show. How are uh, you, sir? I think I agree with the first, with the caller just before me. Uh, I'm disappointed, too, and uh, I don't know, uh, and uh, I, I'm not really clear why the president couldn't have said, you know, he says, I'm going to read the bill. I don't like this. I'm going to veto it. Have a continuing resolution, and then and then uh, and then uh, have border security because this is getting serious enough where uh, that uh, this is getting serious enough that I almost think we ought to have the military on the border. Imagine trying to imagine uh, and, and Israel has a wall way back uh, way back in uh, or in uh, in the early modern era. Uh, uh, Vienna had a wall to keep out invading Turks from the Ottoman Empire, and these people are, are invading from South America, and I just don't know how this is going to turn out, and I'm just afraid for our public, basically, if we lose the uh, 2020 election, what happens to the country? Is the country going to be worth living in anymore, or should we just say, okay, let's uh, go, you know, I, I, that, that, that's how frustrated I feel, and I just wanted to get your take on it, Mr. Uh, Weingarten, and again, I agree with the, with the doctor who called from Silver Spring, Maryland. Okay, I'll take your answer off the air, and thank you for having me on. Bye-bye. Charles, uh, thank, thanks so much for that heartfelt call. Look, I, I, I share your frustration and your concern about the direction of the country. And th- this kind of gets to why Trump's presidency was such a monumental act, a, a revolutionary act, revolutionary in the sense of going back towards the people. I, I, I've, I've said this before in other forums that I believe and I think that this continuing resolution reflects the fact that Trump is a man alone in Washington, D.C. And you can read press accounts that sort of reflect this as well. He holds ideas that completely fly in the face of 90% of the folks in Washington, D.C. that can't be said at elite cocktail parties, that go against everything you learn at elite institutions, that's reinforced in popular culture. And it is near impossible to take on this behemoth. He's one person essentially taking the slings and arrows for 63 million of us. He is, when they talk about the presidency being the loneliest office in the world, it really is the loneliest office in the world when you hear about the internal sniping, leaking, lying, sabotaging the executive branch. It is one person standing up for 63 million, but there's almost no one else in the political class there. It is a, it, it really does imperil our nation, the fact that we don't have a handle on this. And these measures are not the ideal measures. And I think the president would be the first person to agree on that. He's taken every measure gone beyond where other politicians would go. Clearly, in terms of the tactical, what should have been done in the near term, I'm not sure that the continuing resolution would lead to anything other than probably a worse deal even. Ultimately, it's very tough sledding when your side consists of a president and a few other people in Congress. It's very challenging. And you see now that the president is using a power that he'd probably rather not use that's going to be challenged, that has drawn the ire of even some conservatives and some libertarians. We're going to speak with one of those, incidentally. We're going to speak with John Yu a little bit later tonight, a constitutional scholar who has studied executive power versus legislative power, the ins and outs of national emergencies. 
And look, the Department of Defense is going to be down at the border, their budgets being reallocated for these purposes. And look, you saw it in the face of the caravans as well. And the caravans are are part of kind of the series of events, the fact pattern leading up to the justification for declaring a national emergency. And we're going to go back to kind of the legal battle over this and a little bit of the political battle as well with John Yu, as I mentioned, a bit later in the program. But I want to talk about another issue that has really been off the radar, except for wonky folks in Washington, D.C., but which has really drawn the focus of the left in a way that I think few anticipated. And you could sort of see this. And I wrote about this in The Federalist probably almost a year ago. Eric Holder, former attorney general, he came out and it's not as if he's made a ton of public statements or written a ton of op-eds. He came out focused on this issue of a census citizenship question. Now, let's start at the highest level. Why would you care about the census and what does the citizenship question have to do with this topic of national sovereignty? The census is actually a vital document when it comes to political power because it is used in primarily two tasks. One, apportioning seats in the U.S. House, and two, allocating upwards of $800 billion and perhaps $900 billion a year in federal funds down to districts. So let me say, state that again. The number of representatives in your given state, and thus the number of presidential electors that you send to the Electoral College, is dictated by the census numbers. That redistricting occurs every 10 years, and that's why the 2020 census is so essential. And again, $900 billion in federal funds are allocated. $900 billion, that's like a third of the federal budget, maybe slightly less, are allocated based upon the census. The question of the census citizenship question, what is that? Well, the Trump administration decided under Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, the Census Bureau fits under the Commerce Department, that a citizenship question should be included on the primary census. So every American, every household who receives a census, Wilbur Ross and the Trump administration would like the question to be asked, are you a citizen of the United States? There are a few different boxes relating to what your citizenship is, and then there's no, not a citizen of the United States. That's all they want to ask. You would think that that would be a pretty basic question that a country would want to know. You know, in my district, what percentage of people here are citizens? What percentage are non-citizens? Well, the backlash on the left has been massive, and here's why. The census count that determines how many representatives are in each state is based upon total people counted. Let me repeat that. Total people counted. That's citizens and non-citizens. And within non-citizens, there are legal immigrants, and there are people here who are here illegally. So the census count to determine that apportioning counts illegal aliens. So if you live in a state that has a disproportionate number of illegal aliens, you might have a disproportionate number of representatives in your state. A lot of people aren't aware of that. Doesn't that strike you as strange that essentially political power, how many representatives you have, how many electors go to the Electoral College, and then what percentage of the $900 billion plus dollars that gets allocated down to the district levels based upon those population counts, that the numbers that influence that actually include illegal aliens? Did you know that illegal aliens can actually dilute the political power of some people, those who live in states that are disproportionately citizens, and conversely, creates more power for those states that have more illegal aliens or more non-citizens generally? This isn't talked about very often. 
one of the reasons that the Trump the, the reason the Trump administration wants to include the question and the reason they've argued for it is that in order to enforce the Voting Rights Act, something that you would think Democrats would be on board with properly enfo- enforcing provisions of the Voting Rights Act. You need an accurate count of citizens versus non-citizens. Otherwise, non-citizens can dilute the political power of some and un- uh, artificially increase the political power of others. So the Trump administration puts forth the census citizenship question in their proposals and immediately are met with a swift backlash from all sorts of leftist advocacy groups. The case that lost for the Trump administration is now going to be kicked up to the Supreme Court. Today, the news came out, Wall Street Journal headline, quote, Supreme Court agrees to decide legality of census citizenship question. Trump administration seeking to ask census respondents if they are U.S. citizens. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the stakes of this fight, about what the left is arguing, the insane arguments against something as basic as you knowing what percentage of the country is citizens versus non-citizens in your own district, what happens to your political power, why some states are going to lose representatives and some states are going to gain representatives, why there's more funding for some states and not other states. We'll get to this major legal argument that's brewing that sticks to this point of national sovereignty and do we defend the rights of our citizens and the political power of our citizens. We'll get right back to that and we'll have an interview with someone who is supporting the government's efforts to include that citizenship question at the top of the hour. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show, 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-2825. Be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show, and this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Lines are open, 844-900-2825, and you can follow me on Twitter at Weingarten. All right, before the break, I was talking a bit about the census citizenship question and how this question is now going to the Supreme Court based upon a, a ruling that came down today and that the Trump administration had lost in the Southern District of New York in a federal court by an Obama-appointed Judge, And I mentioned the fact that the census is such a vital, vital count because the census really determines how much political power each state has and ultimately how much political power each citizen has. But it's impacted by non-citizens because the counts that we get out of the census, total population count is what matters to determine apportioning of the seats an allocation of hundreds of billions of federal dollars. Okay, so why do Democrats hate the idea of the inclusion of this question? Well, they state that they believe that there will be an unconstitutional undercount, that non-citizens will be afraid to respond to a question, are you a citizen or not, in the census. And we can walk through the history of this, but this question was on the census every decade from 1820 to 1950, Outside of 1840, for whatever reason that was. A similar question has been asked of one in six households in 1980, 1990, and 2000 on the long-form census. The Obama administration, I don't think they're racist targeting illegal aliens. They asked the question of one in 38 households on the document that replaced the long-form census, the American Community Survey. Now, as mentioned, the Trump administration makes the case that in, in order to enforce the Voting Rights Act, something that we can all agree on, 
that they need an accurate count of citizens versus non-citizens. But the left has fear-mongered about this issue, saying it's a Trump administration. We can't trust them to ask this question. They're trying to drive down non-citizen numbers. But what is the real argument at the end of the day? They will lose political power. In fact, in the judge's opinion from New York, who wrote against the Trump administration, he said that the question was actually constitutional. He was fine with the citizenship question. He differed with Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross's judgment and the way he came to his decision. And he wrote, and I quote here, the court finds by a preponderance of evidence that the addition of a citizenship question will cause or is likely to cause, et cetera, et cetera, several jurisdictions to lose seats in the next congressional apportionment, period. Let's stop right there. People could potentially lose house seats because of non-citizens not being included. Thus, the, the potentially, this is all hypothetical, question can't be asked. He added, a net undercount of people who live in non-citizen households will also cause states to lose access to federal funding. What does this all come down to at the end of the day? It comes down to political power. It's not about you, the citizen. It's about political power for those who benefit from those states with large non-citizen populations. When we come back, we'll talk with Jay Christian Adams. His legal group has actually filed an amicus curiae brief, brief with the Trump administration that went to the Supreme Court. We'll be right back on the Buck Sexton Show. You're probably familiar with AARP. You or someone you know might already be a member. But did you know that AARP is about left-wing politics? They lobby for a lot of progressive causes. And AARP fought tooth and nail for a government-run healthcare system? Well, I recommend AMAC. Why AMAC? AMAC was founded by an Air Force veteran, Dan Weber, over a decade ago to represent not only conservative views, but policy that's good for America. AMAC advocates for border protection, and it also advocates for fixing Social Security. Your investment in AMAC also allows AMAC to act for policy good for America. The AMAC difference? It's held over 1,000 real face-to-face meetings with key decision makers in D.C., including senators, as well as key influencers at the White House. AMAC offers the same kind of money-saving benefits that AARP offers, but without the liberal agenda. Join AMAC, the conservative alternative, instead. Stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. The benefits are great, but the cause is even greater. Tell your family and tell your friends. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's amac.us slash buck. AMAC is better. Better for you. Better for America. We simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. An illegal alien should not be treated the same as people who entered the U.S. legally. We must control our borders. We must protect our borders. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, 844-900-2825. Follow me on Twitter at B.H. Weingarten. And those were just some of the few disingenuous Democrats who over the years have, of course, completely flipped on this issue, proving per usual that with them, and of course with many Republicans too, it's about power. It's not actually about principle. And those questions, and again, this question of citizenship, border security, and the like, is really intrinsic to the question of census citizenship and and I think a unique microcosm of what the political class thinks about us because there isn't even a question. You've probably never even heard the question asked, Mr. Representative of my district, why is it that illegal aliens can take political power from me? Or conversely, why is it that this other district, this other state, has more political power by counting people who have cheated the system. I talked a little bit about the historical background of the census citizenship question, the Trump administration's justification for it on the Voting Rights Act, 
and the Democrats challenged to it. And I mentioned the judge in the Southern District of New York, federal judge, he shot down the Trump administration's ability to ask this question, not on constitutional ground. I'm going to quote from his opinion here. The citizenship question, and I quote, is, quote, not inconsistent with the Constitution, unquote, i.e. it's not the question that's at issue here. It's how the Trump administration came to their determination. And by the way, this doesn't even get into the fact that the groups who brought this suit to this judge, Obama appointed judge in the Southern District, were, of course, leftist activist groups who arguably should have had no standing. And the judge made his argument that essentially some political power could be lost among some groups if there was an undercount. But Secretary Ross was the person who had the power delegated to him to determine what questions go on that census since he is the Commerce Secretary and the census sits under him. The judge was not delegated that power. Secretary Ross was. And by the way, that's a running theme that will really run throughout this episode when we talk about not just sovereignty, but everything that the president tries to do vis-a-vis the legislative branch and vice versa. Where does power reside? Here's what Secretary Ross said. Quote, neither the Census Bureau nor the concerned stakeholders could document that the response rate would, in fact, decline materially. The Census Bureau's analysis did not provide definitive empirical support for that belief. And then he went on. Even if there was, and I quote here, an impact on responses, the value of more complete and accurate data derived from surveying the entire population outweighs such concerns, unquote. You know, seems pretty reasonable to me, seems common sense to me. And more importantly, who is a judge to question Secretary Ross's decision making? The judiciary is out of control. The legislative branch is actually supposed to be the most important, powerful branch. The executive executes. The courts are there to review constitutionality, period, full stop. They're not there to question the judgment of a person in this case, an executive branch official who was delegated pretty clear authority to ask whatever questions are necessary, provided there is a constitutional purpose. And here, the constitutional purpose is enforcing the Voting Rights Act. So what is the real story here? Well, as I mentioned, the judge himself admits that this is basically about political power. Potentially, some states could lose seats in the U.S. House and billions of dollars, some portion of which might be allocated elsewhere. And as a result, some people might be hurt by that. Based upon this hypothetical that people aren't going to respond to a question that asks, are you a citizen or not? And oh, by the way, if you're not a citizen, it doesn't ask, are you here legally or illegally? It's not asking people to self-incriminate. It is a pretty basic question of a country. Are you a citizen? Are you not a citizen? I think that most Americans would probably agree. Guys behind the glass, do do you agree with that assertion? You should know who... What percentage of Americans are citizens? What percentage of people in America are non-citizens? Seems pretty reasonable to me. In a country, top of the list, citizenship. Now, broader question. Should, should the census count all people? I'll pose that also to you guys. If you are here illegally, should you be counted in a census so that maybe you get one more seat in the House of Representatives in your state? Is that fair? is not fair. Pretty basic. But Democrats say, actually, it's unfair the other way. It's actually unfair. So there are a lot of legal aliens. Well, they use public services in your districts. You need more money. Now, but why is there another representative? And why does a probably red state that has a lower percentage of legal aliens, why do they get less political power? And where are the Republicans? I've never heard a Republican say a word about 
oh my gosh, this is actually another magnet for illegal immigration. Sanctuary cities, have you ever heard someone say, well, sanctuary cities are a magnet for illegal aliens, and that's actually going to mean more power for their state. So there's actually an incentive before there's ever an amnesty for open borders. I think more than anything this week, what we found out with this bill is that both parties are for open borders. I think they both became exposed, and now we both know what they're all about, essentially. That's the stakes, and they can't keep lying to us about it. In 2020, this will be a fundamental question. President Trump laid out kind of what the fundamental questions are in that State of the Union. You know, if we don't have a border wall, we don't have sovereignty, we're not a country. Pretty basic thing, fundamental. It really... The political class, they're up in arms. How could you ever believe in, you know, territorial integrity? Because apparently they don't believe that there are border lines in this country. Okay, so borders. Do you believe in borders or not? Do you believe in defending your citizens or do you believe that America exists for everyone in the world? Do you believe in infanticide? Do you believe in socialism? Pretty basic things. And Republicans will rally to the president's side on that. But then when push comes to shove, when you get into the nitty gritty of policy, he's pretty much left high and dry. I I still think probably the most telling act of this Congress is what was their seminal achievement with the two years under President Trump when we had all three branches? And, oh, by the way, the political class always said, with respect to health care and, and probably a bunch of other things as well, well, to do this, first we need the House. Okay, got the House. Well, we need the Senate. Got the Senate. Well, we need the presidency. Got the presidency. We need the Supreme Court. Got the Supreme Court. Well, who's kidding who here? Who, who is kidding who here? And I want to go back to that fundamental question about people in the census. And this does get into a little bit of the legal weeds, but it it really shouldn't. Fundamental question that Americans should be able to pose to their representatives, in my view. Why should non-citizens, including illegal aliens, be able to increase the political power of some Americans and decrease the political power of other Americans? So this comes down to definition of people. The Constitution talks about Congress shall set the rules for counting citizens and will use it to apportion seats. That's Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution, calls for a citizenship, citizen census count, apportioning representatives and directing taxes. And then the language was modified after the abolition of slavery under Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. So, of course, before there were slavery provisions, they were stricken after the abolition of slavery so that Every American was counted equally. And I'll quote here from Section 2, 14th Amendment, which requires that apportioning be based on, quote, the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians, not taxed. The section that becomes comes before proceeds Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. Section 1 begins, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. So if you're reading that document like a normal person and not like a liberal lawyer, okay, first sentence defines who persons are. Second sentence references persons. Those persons are born or naturalized in the U.S. and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. That's who the whole number of persons in each state are. And the same holds true for the Constitution itself, by the way. And the census count is called for under the Constitution. The preamble of the Constitution, quote, we the people of the United States, not as constitutional scholar John Eastman puts it, we the people of the world, or We, any foreign nationals who happen to be in the United States when a census is taken. This is pretty basic stuff. You never have heard this question. I have not heard a politician with any kind of bully pulpit get up and say, 
Why should illegal aliens dilute your vote and increase the power of another person's vote? Again, this is minutia. This is getting into the weeds, but this is just as this is vital, just like the border wall is vital. And it comes from the same line of argumentation, which is, are we a country or not? Do we respect our citizens or not? And it's very clear that the political class does not. Otherwise, you might have heard Republicans one time step up and actually defend the Trump administration on including the question, even though the question can't be proven that it's going to suppress suppress response rates, because who should be afraid of answering the question, am I a citizen or not? When when I check the box not, it doesn't say, yes, I'm here illegally, come arrest me. So there have been legal fights on the definition of persons. It's been inconclusive. There's a legislative solution as well. There's a representative from Ohio, his name's Warren Davidson. He recently reintroduced a constitutional amendment, the Fair Representation Amendment, that apportions representatives solely, quote, by counting the number of persons in each state who are citizens of the United States, unquote. And here's what he says about that. He says, Ohio citizens should not have their voices diminished by other states harboring illegal aliens in sanctuary cities. Many Americans don't even realize that through current census practices, non-citizens dilute the influence of citizens, especially in Ohio and other states with lower non-citizen populations. The status quo of awarding states greater representation for this illegal behavior subverts our Constitution. Proper census calculations are needed to ensure that every citizen's vote counts. Now, this amendment, of course, is just going to languish in Speaker Pelosi's house. But here's the reality. It also languished in Republican-controlled houses. Why is that the case? Why shouldn't this fight be had? So I've argued, and in a piece that's going to come out for the Federalists shortly, I make the case that excluding non-citizens from the census might be a legal and political loser, given the state of today's courts and the political incentives around it. But it's incumbent upon those of us who believe in the rule of law and the sanctity of citizenship to challenge the status quo, both in the courts and in the legislative spheres. Just as Democrats do on every single matter, as you're seeing today, for example, with the president's national emergency declaration. I mean, Democrats challenge on every single playing field they possibly can. And when do Republicans put up fights and what do Republicans put up fights for? Well, as I mentioned before, what did they do in two years? Their seminal achievement in that in Congress was a tax reform bill, which wasn't even exactly what the president had called for when he ran for office and clearly was not agenda item number one. They got their priority. And they ignored the priorities that the American people had called for above all else. So as I said, members of the political establishment who cling to the status quo should be put on record and made to answer the following question. You should demand this question of your representatives. Why should non-citizens, including illegal aliens, be able to increase the political power of some Americans while decreasing the political power of others? This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Global Verification Network is the only dual-certified, veteran-owned background investigations and vetting company. It's useful if you're renting out a home or another space. For important decisions like these, you need a service like Global Verification Network. Go to mygvn.com or call at 877-695-695. 1179. Global Verification Network is federally certified as a veteran-owned small business. It's independently certified by the National Veteran Business Development Council, which is the only minority spend certification recognized by the Billion Dollar Roundtable. Global Verification Network is headquartered in Chicago with offices throughout the nation. They are the risk mitigation experts, and they work with all companies from startups to Fortune 100s. 
Rest assured, no data or client information is ever offshored, and all employees are located throughout the United States. Visit Global Verification Network at mygvn.com or call them at 877-695-1179. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Lines are open 844-900-2825, 844-900-2825. You can follow me on Twitter at BH Weingarten, and I actually just tweeted out a quick explainer on the census citizenship for your reference all right, we've got a bevy of callers from the Mid-Atlantic region out tonight. Let's go to Noel in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Noel, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Oh, hey, Ben. How are you, Noel? Yeah, yeah. Oh, pretty good. Uh, yeah, about, uh, that's about three or three, four years ago. Chad Kent did a really good uh, expose on what was Donald Trump right about birthright citizenship. And it actually went into the actual the framers of the amendment to see what they, they went, because there was you know, a very lengthy debate on the Senate floor about it. And it was a very, very, very good explanation on it, saying, you know, basically that the children of illegal aliens are not subject to the jurisdiction thereof, as, as evidence in the amendment. And because they must be subject to the jurisdiction thereof, and since the parents are, the children aren't. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a question that's been raised in, and, and thanks for the call, it's a question that's been raised in any number of pieces of litigation. And of course, the left raises great arguments. I think the arguments on our side are more compelling. You see conservative legal scholars who are very split on this question. And of course, usually the arguments are in some way, form or fashion, sort of tinged by their views on immigration more broadly. These questions really strike at the heart, though, of the question of who are we as a nation? What did the language mean at the time it was written? And I think it's very hard to make the argument that subject to the jurisdiction thereof doesn't mean subject to the jurisdiction thereof. That is, if you came here and your parents weren't citizens and you come into this country, whose jurisdiction are you subject to? Well, temporarily, of course, you're subject to our laws, but that's not the power that typically you're governed by. So I think it's a legitimate question. Uh, there are some great, great arguments out there. You can see uh, on the Federalist, Judge Ho, who's a federal judge out of Texas, has written sort of the anti-case on birthright citizenship. Michael Anton has stirred up the political class in many ways, but in particular, uh, his argument in favor of uh, challenging birthright citizenship. And of course, the president himself has brought up the question, perhaps to raise it as a trial balloon and see where the political wins might be. But I think it's a legitimate question and, and it absolutely should be debated. All right. Let's go to Randy from Richmond, Virginia. Randy, you're on the Buck Sexton show. Yes, uh, it's Ben, correct? It is. Um, I got several things I want to talk about, but I just want to talk about that. There, Mark Lehman mentions a lot of times that this is like a post-constitutional republic, and I really believe that. So I think uh, what we're trying to do is save a republic. It's already gone. It's been gone for a number of years. We just didn't recognize it. That's the first point. Second, I feel like what Mr. Trump is trying to do it is not the way to do it. He, he is listening to the wrong advisors. He needs to come out to the people and persuade the 20 or 30 million people who have not been voting for over 40 or 50 years. You get them back on side to vote for liberty, everything will change overnight. Everything. But until you get those people engaged, you're not. We're going to have the other 40 million voting for having no more liberty. The other side saying they want more socialism. And that's what it's going to be. All with you. We're more not polarized. Like the guy with Steve Dace, I think it is. He says we're balkanized. That's absolutely correct. We're balkanized. We have been balkanized for many, many decades. And we haven't realized that. We're now starting to realize that. 
only because we're now engaged in the argument. And now to add to that, we have lost the argument partly because we've lost the language. We do not even know what conservative means. Conservative meant to be at one time preserve values preserving to liberty. But then it means it actually made the opposite because it mentions the status quo. What is the status quo? It's not liberty. It's tyranny. It's statism. It's socialism. And we've had a social quasi-socialist state since the time of FDR, really since the time of Woodrow Wilson, when he gave to the banking institutions control of our economy. And on top of that, the IRS. Why would they do that? To control our lives. And they've been controlling our lives. So when the Federal Reserve, when they say, well, we'll go ahead and do this and that thing, they're controlling what? Our currency. And you're meaning our lives. We do not do that. The damn Congress gave that over to them, their authority, didn't they? And yet here they do it again, 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 and again. Our enemy has been more of the Congress than anything else. But we keep voting for the same people over and over again. Why? Because they give us stuff. Like if you're a black person, I vote for that guy over there because he gives me stuff. The, the, the damn press convinced half the people to vote against anything pertaining to liberty and vote for more socialism. So they vote in more Democrats to get what? more. Randy, we're going to have to go to break shortly. I share your passion and I share your outrage. And actually, in the next hour, we're going to talk a little bit about how our constitutional liber- liberties have been eviscerated. The language is stolen. And Woodrow Wilson, of course, was the start of all this. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. 844-900-2825. 844-900-2825. All right, I've been teasing this for a little bit. In just a moment, we're going to have a constitutional scholar, a human trigger warning, as I like to call him, to talk a little bit about citizenship a bit, this census question, but also the emergency that was declared today. And and we'll talk a bit about the legal ramifications, what the challenges are likely to be, what the president will do to counter potentially. This should be a fascinating legal battle to watch in part because it really implicates questions of separation of powers and checks and balances. And in this case, as we'll get to in a moment, here you have a president, some will argue, taking authority from the legislative branch, but it's authority that the legislative branch delegated to the president and the executive branch. And that's something that is done. It's very commonplace. And you have constitutional conservatives who don't like that necessarily. Uh, But what this reflects, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, is the fact that the president has availed himself of every potential possible option and was left with no choice by the political establishment but to go with this route. And we'll see how it plays out. And again, I think this guest will argue in just a sec that the legal authority is there. This is more a political question than anything else. All right. So without further ado, John Yoo is a human trigger warning for Democrats everywhere. You probably know him as one of the George W. Bush administration's chief legal architects of the so-called war on terror. He currently serves as a law professor at Berkeley, where I understand he's very popular on campus. And I should mention that John and I did an interview on a completely different topic, his book, Striking Power, How Cyber, Robots, and Space Weapons Change the Rules for War, that I think all of you will find quite insightful. We'll tweet it out after the segment. Without further ado, Professor Yu, thanks for joining us today. Uh, ben, thanks for having me. And I uh, like this new title, Human Trigger Warning. I think I should uh, get a 
what is it, a call to Twitter handle or a t-shirt, t-shirt that has that on the front. I love it. And it should be right up top on your resume as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's jump right into it, John. You wrote a piece that I thought was exceptional at National Review about a week ago where you challenged some of the arguments about the president's legal authority to declare a national emergency and use that to reallocate funds for purposes of building a wall and supplement this $1.375 billion that he procured today. What is your best argument for why the president has the authority to do this? <clears throat> well, first is I think a lot of people in the media are really exaggerating what President Trump has done, uh, making the argument that it's a constitutional power grab, uh, and it's anything but. This is a case where Congress passed a law called the National Emergencies Act in 1976, and it said when the president issues a national emergency order, then he has to go through the following steps, which have occurred. And most importantly, Congress does not sit there and define what a national emergency is. Instead, it just recognizes that has been and is the president's prerogative. Then step two, and this is the key, is Congress has already passed a series of statutes that say when there is a national emergency declared by the president, then he can reallocate funds from any military construction project to a new one, so long as it supports the troops. I think it's pretty straightforward, actually, then, that the president has this authority. And I think I'm afraid what you're seeing is almost a Trump double standard. Uh, what would be normally approved, upheld, not even controversial under any other president is seen as somehow an attack on the constitutional order just because the president's last name is Trump. You know, I think that's actually one of the untold stories of this presidency is there's the attack leveled, and I've mentioned this before, oh, norms are being violated, the institutions are being threatened, the will of the people is being thwarted by this president acting unilaterally. Well, actually, relative to his predecessors, I mean, can you think of a more constrained president in the sense of judges probably overreaching and the legislative branch really not being helpful in any sense? Well, he has been, uh, I think, challenged in court to a remarkable level. Uh, so you've seen cases where judges out here, where I am in California, Hawaii, have blocked various policies. And then you have cases where it's taken months, if not a year, for those cases to get to the Supreme Court so that eventually the normal standards are applied. So a good example would be the travel ban, which I think will, I think this case about the wall will play out very similarly to the travel ban case. Uh, there you had courts out in Hawaii, out here, block uh, use of presidential power, again, given to him by Congress that previous presidents had used regularly to regulate the flow of uh, immigrants into the United States. And then it took, you had to go all, Trump had to go all the way to the Supreme Court to get the regular powers that presidents exercised, uh, recognized and approved. And it's worth noting, of course, that in matters of national security, the president is typically provided wide latitude under the Constitution. Oh, yes. In fact, and, you know, as, as you know, Ben, you, you, know, you interviewed me before about my other books. Um, the Constitution put aside these congressional statutes, but the Constitution created the presidency. The framers wanted the president to be a single person, exactly so he could act quickly 
and decisively in response to emergencies. Uh, this is uh, this is what Congress itself acknowledges when it gives the president these kinds of broad powers by statute to act in times of emergency. So it's not a case where the president and Congress disagree. This is a case actually where Congress has handed these powers to the president to amplify his powers and make it easier for him to act in time of emergency. Now, I'm sure there's going to be some sort of absurd argument made about what is the a definition of an emergency, and then does a judge get to overrule a president in the president's judgment about what an emergency is? Is there any merit to an argument like that, or do you see probably a Ninth Circuit judge saying, yes, there is a problem to it, and the Supreme Court overruling that rationale? It's a great question. You know, what you're asking is uh, what the law is, uh, and then predicting what some wild judge might do. So unfortunately, I think you're right. There's got to be one judge out there in the 800 federal judges in our country who will strike this down, who, uh, just like the judges struck down the travel ban, I think there are going to be judges who misread the law uh, just because they want to stop Trump in any of these initiatives. But then what the actual law says is that um, courts aren't supposed to second-guess the president in determining national emergency. The Supreme Court has never substituted its judgment for the president's about whether a national emergency exists. The only question is how much power can the president exercise if there isn't once he declares an emergency. And there is a case from the 1950s called Youngstown Sheet and Steel and Tube where President Truman declared a national emergency over the Korean War But then he tried to nationalize the steel industry, basically run a large sector of our economy. And this, I think, is very different from that. This is a case not where President Trump is claiming, oh, I can run the economy because of the border. But it's like he's saying Congress already said I can move money from one account to another to build military facilities. It's much narrower power and not even really involving any claim of constitutional authority by President Trump. But that said, and I expect the Supreme Court would uphold the president, that said, I can't discount the possibility there's some trial judge in San Francisco or Honolulu or Seattle who'd be willing to try to throw uh, the weight of the courts against the president and spark a constitutional confrontation. You know, it strikes me, actually, since you raise Youngstown Steel, which all of those who are critics of this policy Ray, is that Youngstown is actually probably the right response to those who say President Trump is creating a precedent that will allow some future Democratic president to impose the new Green Deal by decree, that Youngstown is actually probably a better analog for that than this case. Do you see that as well? I mean, I understand the worries of my conservative friends who say, aren't you creating a precedent for you know, President Warren or President Kamala Harris declaring a national emergency and then eliminating fossil fuel imports and forcing electrification of, you know, all... And the slaughter of all cows. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, I believe it was uh, certain kinds of cows. <laughs> keep, in, keep it in, as it were. So, you know, the problem is that, you know, one, it does say emergency. And emergency does imply an event or something happening. So you couldn't declare a national emergency about the weather or crime levels or, you know, poverty. You know, it's not a consistent social condition, it would have to be something happening and you're responding to something happening. Uh, Otherwise, then you're just, you're not talking about an emergency. 
Uh, and then second, as you say, this is more like Youngstown because, again, the question is what powers are you allowed to exercise? Uh, here you're just talking about transferring money from one military construction account to another. It's actually kind of boring uh, you know, federal budget accounting in a way. Uh, you know, these people were about a Green New Deal. And let me add, I can't see President Harris or President Warren saying, oh, uh, because President Trump did not declare national emergency over the wall, I'm going to restrain myself now. <laughs> you know, I don't think anything President Trump does is going to act as some kind of restraint on what a future Warren or Harris presidency will do. But, you know, there's a big difference because they don't have any delegated power from Congress to force electrification of all of our energy and the end of use of fossil fuels and all the other wild dreams they have in this Green New Deal project. And the, the way I see it, and this is as a, a layman talking here, you know, the delegation question is really what this all kind of comes down to in the final analysis. So is, you've described it as sort of transferring funds from one account to another that had already been earmarked for the executive branch effectively. Is there an argument that certain provisions of the National Emergency Act are unconstitutional because Congress is delegating powers it has no right to delegate, i.e., Congress exists to make laws and appropriate funds, and it isn't the president's job to basically be able to have that power handed to him? Again, I think this is a, a, a people, like I've read commentaries, some, you know, people who are conservatives, you know, like a Ron Paul, for example. Uh, I'm sorry, Rand Paul, not Ron Paul. A Rand Paul, for example. I think they're completely misreading this. You know, they're making this claim, oh, the president is seizing authority to uh, use the power of the purse. It's anything but. You know, if uh, if it had been like Lincoln, who actually at the start of the Civil War went into the Treasury and took money out without any congressional act, then you would have that argument. But this is a case where Congress already put money in the pot, and it said spend it on military construction, billions of dollars. And then the president said, and then Congress says, under certain conditions, you can move it from one project to the next. Uh, the money's already been appropriated by Congress. The purse has already been opened. And in fact, then Congress already recognized the authority of a president to move it around. So I think, you know, these claims that the president is invading the power of the purse, taking away Congress's this is anything but. This is an area where Congress wanted the president to have this power and gave it away willingly. One of the attacks on the president's power, and we'll have to leave it at this question, but I'd love to hear your take on it. One of the biggest mm -hmm. assaults on his power during this presidency has been the use of universal or nationwide injunctions, where effectively one in 600 judges in federal courts across the country can say, my judgment overrules the president's judgment, and thus a decision, uh, some kind of executive action will be vacated or stalled, put on hold for everyone in the country. So one judge who has jurisdiction in one particular area, their ruling applies to everyone nationwide. And it, this has, of course, happened with the travel ban and in a series of other instances as well. In response to that travel ban case, Justice Clarence Thomas, one of your former bosses, uh, challenged mm -hmm. the notion that universal injunctions are necessarily constitutional, that there wasn't really a historical precedent for them. They're sort of a new creation. And frankly, he thinks that a president or some other party may have to challenge them to the Supreme Court. I agree with him, frankly. Uh, my question would be, is there a way, do you believe that universal injunctions can be killed? 
Well, first, I, I agree with uh, Justice Thomas, who has, I have to say, excellent taste in his hires. <laughs> but I have to say, Justice Thomas, I think, is right on this. And I think it's fairly straightforward. Um, a court, like a district court, like the ones here, or up there, have power only over the people who appear before in its territory. So like San Francisco's territory of its courts is only the northern part of California. They don't have, I think, the authority to tell the entire federal government. John, I'm sorry. We're going to have to cut it right there. We will have you back and we will finish this conversation. I appreciate it. This was John Yu and this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show, and this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Lines are open, 844-900-2825. You can follow me on Twitter at BH Weingarten. Let's go to the phones here. Let's go to Charlie in Ocean City, Maryland. Charlie, you are on the Buck Sexton Show. Thanks for taking my call, Ben. Uh, I just, I'm a little older uh, senior citizen, but I follow politics pretty well, and I'm a conservative, and I'm not ashamed of that. I think a lot of our supposed conservative Republicans don't really vote that way. And my question to you is, since you guys had such a big voice, why can't we public their voting, whether it be in the Senate or in the Congress, and make it public because... All politicians, once they get into office, their most prioritized vision is re-election. And if we start publishing how they vote, then they will be more aware of their voters, which is me. Charlie, uh, thanks for the call. So I think the idea here is sort of name and shame. Pull out the you know 10 most vital votes. And let's get everyone on record and let's put it out there. And, you know, what I would suggest to you, Charlie, is like you said, the first rule of politics is win. The second rule of politics is win re-election. And for folks in the House, they continue to sort of hoodwink voters. And part of this is that who do they really answer to ultimately? They ultimately answer to their donors. And you have every once in a blue moon you know, someone like a Dave Brad who comes out and wins on principles and ideology. The best thing that we can do long term isn't any one particular election. We have to take back the real institutions, the institutions that build civil society, our culture, our schools, our media. That should be our 100 year project, just like the progressives had their long march. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. 844 844-900-2825. Morning coffee is an American institution. That's why when it comes to starting my day, I reach for the most American coffee on the market, Black Rifle Coffee. I like to load up on Black Rifle Coffee for extra ammunition two times per day. It's got a great flavor, it packs a punch, and it reflects my conservative values. Black Rifle Coffee gives a portion of their sales to veteran and first responder causes. Black Rifle Coffee is roast to order, guaranteeing you fresh, delicious coffee with every order. Black Rifle's Coffee Club makes things easy. Just pick your blend and the amount you want, and Black Rifle ships your coffee right to your door every month, hassle-free. Wake up with America's coffee, Black Rifle Coffee. Visit BlackRifleCoffee.com buck and receive 15% off your order. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com buck for 15% off. BlackRifleCoffee.com buck. 
Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton here at the top of hour three. Dial in numbers 844-900-2825, and you can follow me on Twitter at BH Weingarten. All right, in the past couple hours, we talked a lot about sovereignty, citizenship, and I mentioned that this census citizenship question is really intrinsic to the entire broader argument, and it's being challenged in litigation right now, which we found out today, is headed up to the Supreme Court. J. Christian Adams served from 2005 to 2010 in the voting section at the United States Department of Justice, so he knows a little thing or two about the Voting Rights Act and why the census citizenship question is relevant to it. Today, he's president and general counsel of the Public Interest Legal Foundation, known as PILF, which has filed amicus curiae briefs alongside the Commerce Department, both in the New York federal case and now at the Supreme Court case where that New York case has been punted to. Christian Adams joins us now. Christian, how are you, sir? Um, great. Glad to be here. Well, it's my pleasure, and uh, thanks for all the great work that PILF does. Let's get right to it. I think that this case of census citizenship is a perfect microcosm for how the left uses lawfare to pursue its policy objectives. And let's start with a very basic question about this New York federal case, which is who filed the case against the Trump administration and did they have a right to be heard? That is, did they have standing? Oh, my gracious. Who filed? Well, remember, there's a whole bunch of cases uh, happening at one time. Uh, You have you have you have attacks going on in California, in Maryland. These obviously came out of New York. You have groups like the League of Women Voters. Uh, you have you have other organizations. Who all want to stop. All want to stop the uh, the census. The, the stop the census from actually getting real scientific data about the number of non-citizens who live in the United States. Uh, it, it's it's just an astonishing. You know, we hear all the time about uh, science and how one party is the party of science. Well, here's an example where uh, somebody doesn't want the truth about what's happening out there. Yeah. So let's go to the substance of the case. You know, the argument is made that by having this question, essentially, are you a citizen or not? And the only box, if you're in the not category, is no, not a citizen. So in other words, you don't out yourself as an illegal alien, potentially. But more broadly, why is it imperative that the government have accurate counts of citizens and non-citizens? Right. Um, the, the reason that the Trump administration offered is that it helps enforce the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act, of course, prevents discrimination in voting. And I can tell you from very firsthand experience that that is the truth, that when you have citizenship data and you're preparing a Voting Rights Act case, you have a better case. How do I know this? Because I do it repeatedly. I won a case in federal court very recently, as a matter of fact, in the United States District Court for Guam. I'm actually in, uh, representing an Air Force, retired Air Force major in Guam, who was denied the right to vote because he was not a native Chamorro. And we were able to prove uh, that this law was racially discriminatory in its intent because of the census data from 1950. And I won't trouble you with all the ins and outs of that, but it was very important that year because that's when Guam became a territory with the people there getting rights as citizenship. 
So we were able to figure out how many people were citizens and not citizens in 1950 because the census asked that question. But that's only one example. When I was at the Justice Department and I was bringing Voting Rights Act cases, one of the things you would put in your initial complaint was the citizen population. Now, the problem is that in most places in the country, that's an estimate because you don't have the real data because, remember, that's what this fight's all about. And so we would have to make guesses sometimes. And getting citizenship data in the next census will help them enforce the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, so this judge, who Obama appointed judge in the Southern District of New York, he says in his opinion that the census citizenship question is, quote, unquote, not inconsistent with the Constitution, i.e., there's not really a constitutional argument against asking something as basic as are you a citizen or not. His beef, if I'm reading the opinion correctly, is with how Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross came to his decision and then basically questioning his judgment altogether. How is it possible that a judge can substitute his wisdom for the person to whom the power is delegated here, in this case, the Commerce Secretary? Right. The Congress has specifically delegated this power to do the citizenship, to do all the census questions to Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. But you know what? The New York Immigration Coalition, who's the plaintiff in that case, doesn't like that. So what they had to do was form shop, go to Manhattan to find a judge who, uh, who, who, who apparently thinks that uh, the president can be second-guessed on this, no matter what Congress said to the contrary. And so uh, what, what the plaintiffs are saying is, hey, you didn't listen to the bureaucrats. You know, this is just a pretext. You're supposed to listen to the bureaucrats. Uh, you're supposed to uh, basically do whatever the New York Immigration Coalition wants, or they're going to take you to court. And thank goodness we have a Supreme Court now that is almost certainly likely to uphold the citizenship question. Yeah, th- this this judge in New York essentially struck down the citizenship question on the basis of the Administrative Procedures Act, in other words, the way that the Commerce Secretary came to his decision and what that decision ultimately was. Do you think that case holds up at all when it gets to the Supreme Court? No, I think what will happen is the Supreme Court justices, who are very uh, familiar with the the exercise of simply reading what the law says, right? <laughs> the law says that the Commerce Secretary has the authority to write the census questions. Full stop. Okay, that's all you need to decide this case is to look at the law and see who has the power to write the census questions under a law passed by the Congress and signed by the president. That's the kind of basic stuff we learned in Schoolhouse Rock. When the law is passed, it is the law and we have to follow it. But these days, up is down and in is out. And this judge uh, sided with the New York Immigration Coalition. Last question on this, and I think this really gets to the core of a much bigger argument which hasn't been made yet, but I believe should be made, and I'm going to argue in a piece coming out soon at The Federalist, that it must be made. The reality here is that non-citizens essentially empower certain citizens politically and disempower other citizens politically because, as I've discussed earlier in this episode tonight, Apportionment is determined based upon total population count, i.e. citizens and non-citizens, as well as the allocation of hundreds of billions of federal dollars are dictated based upon total population count. And it goes to this question of the definition of 
people, the enumeration both in the Constitution and then in the 14th Amendment. In your view, is there a legal case to be made for defining people as citizens, period, full stop, and is it being made? Well, okay, now we're talking about a number of different things, just to be clear. Apportionment is how many congressional seats each state gets, okay? And so far they've used total population. It does say people in the Constitution. So the question is, is that citizens, non-citizens, or both? What I think is also very fascinating is when it comes to redistricting, you talk about political sub, uh, impacts. All over the country, there are people elected to office who are elected solely because because they're counting non-citizens for drawing the district lines for things like school board, county council, uh, uh, state legislatures. Who's getting screwed by this? For example, African Americans in Los Angeles. African Americans in Los Angeles have been losing political power and political seats on council over the last 20 years because of the influx of illegal aliens into Los Angeles and the fact that they're being counted uh, for the purpose of drawing district lines for school board and, and council seats. And so what's happened is African Americans have been squeezed out. Here's how that works. Let's say you need 100,000 people in each district. Okay, it's probably more than that, but we'll just take it for an example. If you need 100,000 people in a Hispanic district in Los Angeles, there might be 70,000 citizen Hispanics and 30,000 non-citizens. But in that African-American district where they're almost all citizens, it's going to take 100,000 citizens. So Hispanic seat gets created under the Voting Rights Act because there's 70,000 Hispanic citizens and a, a African-American seat gets created only after there's 100,000. So you see what happens. It's a political subsidy to areas with high alien populations. Last question, real quick before I let you go, because you've been doing right. great work on this. H.R. 1, the first bill put forth in the new Democratic House. Tell our listeners what they need to know about H.R. 1. This is Nancy Pelosi's top priority. It takes every bad idea about elections and, and makes it a federal mandate, takes all of the nonsense from California, uh, just everything. It strips states of their powers to run their own elections. It federalizes uh, all state elections into one centralized control. It's their top priority. It is their number one priority. It's a disaster. Christian, on that sunny note, we'll leave it right there. Thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate all your great work. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. By now, you've probably heard Buck talk about Snippy.com, a new social media website. If you looked at Snippy.com and left, look again. Thousands of Buck Sexton Show listeners like you have joined Snippy.com expressing their opinions and stirring up lively conversations. Snippy is an unbiased social media platform that's all about conversation and community. Snippy not only encourages freedom of expression, but guarantees its users the ability to discuss topics freely without suppression from administrators. Snippy is a place where everyone is free to express their thoughts and share their opinions. It's a real safe space. Snippy is totally free to join, open to everyone. Join us at snippy.com and let your opinion matter. There's no shadow banning and no suppression of conservative thought, ever. Now with an updated user interface and exciting new features. Also available in the Apple App Store and now available for Android. Snippy, your new alternative social media. 
This is the Buck Sexton Show, and this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Lines are open 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, we're going to go to the phone lines real quick, and I understand we have a one Robert Francis O'Rourke from El Paso, Texas, joining us. Robert Francis, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm well. I'm well, Mr. O'Rourke. How are you, sir? I'm okay, Ben, but I just, like, I just don't understand, like, like, why don't you open your heart the way that we should open the borders? Like, I just, I just want to know, like, do you, do you just not want, like, your heart to be full of love and immigrants? There's room in your heart for immigrants. So, so Representative O'Rourke, I, I want to ask you about that. If you were elected president, would your first act be to tear down every wall? Absolutely. I want to tear down walls the same way that I want to tear down the barriers between people when, like, it's just time to give out hugs at a rally that, like, maybe has 30 or 40 people down the street from a Trump rally with, like, 15 or 20,000 people. And I just also, I don't know if you know this, Ben, because I know you're a conservative and you think you know things, but perhaps, like, when you build walls and you're skateboarding, you can run into those walls. That, that's a valid, that is a valid point. That, that is very yeah, valid. Now, it, it, is val- it is valid, Ben. Actually, it is. Now, now, now can I ask you, uh, to the extent to which you're not living on the streets of Brooklyn these days, uh, do you have walls surrounding you in your abode right now? Ben, let me explain something, okay? Because when I'm the next president, I just don't want to have to go over the same ground because I'm very busy. That's why I have to do social media while people see my root canal happening, and I just feel like it's time for people to understand that, yes, I may be a married into a family that is worth, like, a cool four or five hundred million dollars, but I'm totally normal, and the compound in which I live, like, when we go see, like, Papa and Mama, and, like, they are flying us in with helicopters, of course there's walls, Ben, because, like, we're really important. Now, let me ask you something, because you went through many trials and and tribulations in your life. What was the toughest thing about being a nanny on the Upper West Side of New York following your Ivy League education? Well, it's hard because, like, when you're a left-wing sex symbol like I am, like, you know, the people, like, ladies just come over and they're like, oh, my God, Beto, you're going to stop climate change, and also I need to see your washboard abs. I'd be like, excuse me. First, are we going to bring down the climate one degree centigrade or not? And, and if they said yes, then obviously they could see my abdominal muscle. You may be the cause of global warming yourself, actually. I think that's a fair point. And I just also want to say, Ben, man, congratulations on doing a great show, my friend. Thank you so much for hosting. The team is loving it. And I'll let you get back to it. All right. I, I appreciate it. But I was going to ask you, you know, do you think that the claim that Beto is cultural appropriation holds any water. I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. Uh, is it cultural appropriation for millennials or is it cultural appropriation <laughs> for a guy that uses a Hispanic nickname because he thinks it makes him sound cool? I don't know, man. When I he's leave, running I against the Cuban. <laughs> I, leave, I leave this stuff to you. But have a great rest of your... I'm, I'm clogging up the lines. you got people on the team calling in. Let me, let me uh, let you get back to it, my friend. Thank you so much for all your great work, brother. I'll talk to you soon. 
Well, thank you for letting me fill your big shoes, Buck, and I appreciate it. And that's a hell of a Beto impression. Folks, he may be more likable than the actual Robert Francis O'Rourke. All right, we're going to go take one quick call, and then we're going to have to hit a break. Let's go to Don in Mobile, Alabama. Don, you want to talk about the New Green Deal, something Beto O'Rourke surely is a fan of. You are on the Buck Sexton Show. Absolutely, Ben. And uh, uh, he let Buck know we need to start saying shields higher, I think. Um <laughs> Yeah, I've got a little uh, little quick thing I want to run by everybody. <clears throat> Magnetic propulsion uh, train system from San Diego to probably somewhere around Brownsville, Texas, runs along the border of the U.S.-Mexican border. Um, <clears throat> the Democrats can start their pilot project for the Green New Deal, uh, let uh, Trump have his money to build his steel uh, – Magnetic propulsion system. <laughs> they can put their bullet train on top of it, and they can travel from San Diego to Brownsville, and then they could start their oversea, uh, probably to I don't know, maybe Costa Rica. You know the the train system they're talking about. They must have some kind of technology that we just don't know about yet, about doing away with aircraft and automobiles. And you know, I just thought that might be something uh, we could you know ask Buck about. What do, What do you think? Well, yeah, and, you know, probably for less than $77 billion as well, which, oh, by the way, in California, they failed to build a train from L.A. to San Francisco. Uh, I, you know what, though? Your, your idea, though. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Don. There. Yeah. You know, your, your idea, though, there's definitely merit to because you see all the people fleeing in droves from California to Texas. So I think you might have a business plan there. You should probably talk to Elon Musk about that. <laughs> yes, sir. Might make me a millionaire, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. At least I know how to vote, brother. <laughs> Shields high. Shields higher. I appreciate the call, Don. We're going to talk a little bit uh, in the last little remaining time that we have a bit about economics and the new Green Deal, so-called Green New Deal, rather, and what that's all about. You know, part of the argument that has not been leveled, but it, and maybe it's because people aren't taking it seriously, but they really should Given how many members, we're talking at least around 70 members of Congress, that's the Senate and the House, including a number of announced presidential contenders on the Democratic side. Given how many folks are actually supporting this thing, it's probably worth taking a closer look at. And I think what you really see is that the Democrats are scared because all the energy in their party is really with the Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar caucus. That is where the power is. You saw it with Bernie Sanders, and this is just the young generation version of Bernie Sanders because the progressives have dominated at our institutions for the last 40 or 50 years. So Bernie is old, but his ideas are new. They're blooming right now, uh, except that they've been tried repeatedly throughout history and failed and left people in poverty, misery, starvation. And we'll talk a little bit about that in our last half hour. But I also want to talk about the fact that what is the Green New Deal? Well, was the first New Deal itself such a smashing success? Did it actually lead us to prosperity? Did it get us out of the Great Depression? Words matter when we talk about the success of the New Deal. So a Green New Deal is going to be even better. Why well, challenge that assertion? And anyone who loves liberty and anyone who's honest should challenge that too. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, 844-900-2825, 844-900-2825.
Medicare for all would save the American people a very large amount of money. Why aren't we incorporating the cost of all the funeral expenses of those who die because they can't afford access to health care? We look at these figures and we say, oh, unemployment is low. Everything is fine, right? Well, unemployment is low because everyone has two jobs. We need to occupy every airport. We need to occupy every border. We need to occupy every ICE office. If we work our butts off to make sure that we take back all three chambers of Congress, uh, rather all three chambers of government, the presidency, the Senate, and the House. You use the term the occupation of Palestine. Mm. What did oh. you mean by that? Oh, um, I think it, what I meant is like the, the settlement. Just last year, we gave the military a $700 billion uh, tax, uh, budget increase, which they didn't even ask for. And we're like, the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. And your biggest issue is your, your biggest issue is how are we going to pay for it? No, I think it is a green dream. And I think that uh, it is. It is. This is Ben Weingarten and this is the Buck Sexton Show. That was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'm just speechless listening to that montage. Follow me on Twitter at BH. Wine Garden, and we started with that little montage because I wanted to talk a little bit about the Green New Deal and what it's all about. And Ocasio-Cortez is a freshman congresswoman from New York. Her counterpart in New York, the governor, Cuomo, recently made some remarks, and I think that this all sort of fits together here. Now, Ocasio-Cortez, recently in New York, helped kill Amazon coming to New York. And she didn't make the argument on crony capitalism grounds, which might have been a legitimate argument. You know, should a city like New York or a state provide all sorts of incentives, several hundred million dollars uh, in essentially giveaways and then uh, taxes that would not have to be paid down the road? Well, regardless, 25,000 jobs went up in smoke. And I think that's a pretty good start to where the Green New Deal is, actually. They would rather their, impose their dream quote-unquote green dream, then actually see prosperity. You know, she made the, uh, the comment about, oh, well, everyone has two jobs, and that's why unemployment is so low, which is not how unemployment is calculated, of course. And oh, by the way, during the Obama years, when they tried, you know, a, a fraction, just a mere, the smallest percentage possible relative to what the Green New Deal is talking about, we had declining unemployment rates only because millions of people were falling out of the workforce. There is now a much higher percentage of people in the workforce and actively looking for jobs. It's a completely different scenario because the policies have completely flipped. In, in any event, Ocasio-Cortez against Amazon, Cuomo and others for Amazon. And why was Cuomo for Amazon being here? Well, he complained recently that essentially all of the wealthy taxpayers are fleeing New York and going to Florida. Gee, can you imagine that? A guy who said... Conservatives are not welcome in this city. A guy who believes in infanticide and celebrates it. A guy who believes in taxing and spending ad infinitum. Hmm. Why would people want to leave a place where your tax rate could be over 50% all in and go to a place where there's no state income tax? And better weather for that matter. Well, the numbers are actually in and the big winners, you'll be shocked, in net domestic migration in the past year include Florida, plus 132,602, Arizona, plus 83,240, and Texas, 82,569. What states are losing? 
New York, negative 180,306. California, negative 156,068. Illinois, negative 114,154. And what what do all these states have in common? It answers itself. It really answers itself. Okay, so then you have people like AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You know, she's celebrating. She tweeted, anything is possible. Today was the day a group of dedicated, everyday New Yorkers and their neighbors defeated Amazon's corporate greed, its worker exploitation, and the power of the richest man in the world. Well, good luck, get, good luck getting the Washington Post endorsement anytime soon, by the way, when you're attacking Jeff Bezos' company. But beyond that, yay, down with jobs. 25,000 jobs gone for New Yorkers. It's an amazing argument, and but there's something that links both Ocasio-Cortez and Cuomo, and that is Cuomo doesn't want to see people fleeing his state because he's afraid there's actually competition. There's federalism in this country. There's still a concept of states being laboratories of experiment. And if my state has a much more favorable business climate, tax climate, other areas, you know, more freedom in education, educational choice and the like, politicians that represent their values, people can still get up and walk. And the federal government, no matter how much power it has taken, there is still a difference between these states. What AOC wants to do is help solve Andrew Cuomo's problem by federalizing everything so that there is no difference and there is no state to escape to. Just like America is the last bastion of freedom in the world. There's no other country to escape to when things get bad here. What the left wants to do is say, hmm, all of our states are struggling. New York, Illinois, California, these progressive bastions, the places where everything should be wonderful all the time. And they want to federalize the very policies that are at those states so you can't go anywhere. And oh, by the way, the productive states have to subsidize the unproductive states. There there is another element of this, and that ultimately comes down to the fact that the, the New Green Deal, Green New Deal, quote unquote, what it is really all about is socialism with a smiley face of environmentalism on it. It creates a facade of legitimacy based upon the fact that, according to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the world is going to end in 12 years. Unless we massively redistribute wealth and power to Washington, D.C. And oh, by the way, Washington, D.C. is going to be the one creating all the jobs by imposing the same policies that, let's say, let's see, $77 billion wasted in California to do a high-speed train that they can't get between Los Angeles and San Francisco, but Ocasio-Cortez wants to do it intercontinental. Vermont, that's another progressive bastion. It's very small. You would think that if you were going to be able to have socialism anywhere, it would be in Bernie Sanders' home state. Guess what? Vermont had to ditch single-payer health care several years ago because it just didn't work. The costs were rising too high. That's in little Vermont. Now, people on the left, they'll tell you, well, look at the Scandinavian countries. See, yeah, they're not Venezuela. We don't believe in that sort of socialism. We believe in the Scandinavian kind. Well, look at the statistics, and what you'll see is that besides the fact that the Scandinavian countries are small and they have relatively homogenous populations, they get along well, it's very cohesive culturally and the like, so you don't have any issues there, they actually have very free market economies and based upon some, re- some ratings actually are more liberalized than the U.S. is. So, yes, they have generous welfare states. But they have societies that can deal with the downsides of them, first of all. And second of all, second of all, they're very restrictive in terms of their immigration. They want productive people coming, people who believe in the ethoses that animate those nations. And third, they have relatively free market economies that are able to underscore and overwhelm the largesse that's doled out by the government. 
My question to all the Green New Dealers is, how many experiences with central planning do we have to have before we realize the disastrous consequences everywhere they're tried? And how many times are people going to be duped by the fact that except for the truest of true believers, what these policies are really about is more power in Washington, D.C. over your life? All you have to do to look at how this works out, you can look at Venezuela for starters. You can go back to the founding of the United States. Plymouth, Governor William Bradford, back in Plymouth, we're talking in the 1620s here, prior to Thanksgiving. They essentially had communism, in his own words, in his diaries, communism. And they almost literally died off. When they implemented private property rights, suddenly there was bounty. And that led to the Thanksgiving that's been depicted. There are many other examples in real time, in the real world, recent years, East Germany versus West Germany. That was a real example of the exact same nation, essentially, the same people, the same starting point, the same infrastructure. One was governed under the Iron Curtain of communism. The other was free. How did that turn out? North Korea versus South Korea today. Again, we can't get a high-speed rail line in progressive California. You can't do socialized medicine in Vermont. What the left wants to do, though, is make sure that these policies are imposed everywhere. They want to take these failures and put them on steroids. The size and scope of the Green New Deal would cover every aspect of your life. It wasn't just in the fact sheet that came out that they then had to pull back and claim it was a gaffe or a doctor document created as some kind of right-wing conspiracy. No, the size and scope says that the aims are what was in FDR's sort of square deal, in effect or his second Bill of Rights, rather. And those weren't rights. Those were services. You have the right to great health care and affordable costs. You have the right to a job. You have the right to all manner of things that are created in a free world that government cannot decree. They cannot, by fiat, rain down from the heavens. Here are jobs. Here is wealth. And the New Deal itself is a great example of that. And when we come back, we'll do a little history lesson to show that the New Deal was terrible, the Green New Deal will be 10 times as disastrous. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, 844-900-2825, 844-900-2825. This is The Buck Sexton Show, and this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. All right, before we close up shop tonight, as I was mentioning, when I hear Green New Deal raised, words matter. What was the New Deal? And the fact that we have to go through this history lesson every time socialism is brought forth really gets tiring, frankly, but it cannot be said enough. The New Deal was not some panacea. That did not get us out of the Great Depression. It's a myth. A couple of economists prove this pretty well. Harold Cole of the University of Pennsylvania and Leo Hanian of UCLA wrote back in 2009, and this was during the financial crisis, when there were all sorts of arguments for we need essentially a second New Deal, and we got part of the way there. They did an article and they showed that actually the New Deal impeded the recovery. Why did it impede economic recovery? Because it implemented all sorts of collectivist measures that hampered the free market's ability to adjust after the dislocation of the economic crash. If it didn't work then after a crash when your recovery is supposed to be quite strong because you're getting back to normal, why would it work now? Why would we take a booming economy and destroy it? Here's what they said in an article in the Wall Street Journal about their research. Quote here, there was even less work on average during the New Deal than before FDR took office. Total hours worked per adult, including government employees, were 18% below their 1929 level 
between 1930 and 1932, but were 23% lower on average during the New Deal, 1933 to 1939. Private hours worked were even lower after FDR took office, averaging 27% below their 1929 level, compared to 18% lower between 1930 and 1932. Total hours worked per adult in 1939 remained about 21% below their 1929 level. So hours worked 21% lower 10 years after we actually had the crash. Per capita consumption did not recover at all. It remained 25% below its trend level throughout the New Deal. So why did this all happen? They write in this paper about the fact that it was the New Deal that hampered any recovery. The New Deal is the answer. And I'll quote here. Anti-market policies choked off powerful recovery forces that would have plausibly returned the economy back to trend by the mid-1930s. Most damaging were those at the heart of the recovery plan, including the National Industrial Recovery Act, which tossed aside the nation's antitrust acts and permitted industries to collusively raise prices, provided they shared their newfound monopoly rents with workers by substantially raising wages well above underlying productivity growth. That is... Collusion, government incentivized collusion in the economy. The NIRA, that's the National Industrial Recovery Act, covered over 500 industries ranging from autos and steel to ladies' hosiery and poultry production. Each industry created a code of fair competition, quote unquote, which spelled out what producers could and could not do and which were designed to eliminate, quote, excessive competition that FDR believed to be the source of the depression. These codes distorted the economy by artificially raising wages and prices, restricting output and reducing productive capacity by placing quotas on industry investment in new plants and equipment, and on and on. And that is basically what the new Green Deal, Green New Deal rather, would do on steroids. At the end of the day, what did Henry Morgenthau, Roosevelt's Treasury Secretary, say in 1939 after all of these different government interventions were tried? Quote, we are spending more than we have ever spent before and it does not work. I say after eight years of this administration, we have just as much unemployment as when we started and an enormous debt to boot, unquote. New Deal, disaster. Green New Deal, disaster on steroids. President Obama's so-called stimulus and the other widespread government regulation and intervention after the financial crisis, including Obamacare, we have the weakest recovery of any rece- from any recession that we've had since the Great Depression. So why would this time be any different? Why would Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez somehow have this divine knowledge that this time central planning is going to work. You know, the greatest economic stimulus we could ever have is for every citizen to read Bastiat and Hayek and Milton and Friedman, Milton Friedman rather, and the founding fathers. That would be the greatest economic stimulus. It would be a heck of a lot cheaper than a Green New Deal that's going to cost 50 times what our federal government budget is every year. Democrats will resist attempts to challenge this agenda, of course, because for them, this is all about power. And while we're on that topic of power, before we close up tonight, a reminder that this week we celebrated a sad anniversary, the 40th anniversary of the Islamic Revolution in Iran, which took a relatively dynamic and free, prosperous country, authoritarian, yes, in terms of its leadership, but relatively European and booming and secular and turned it into what we have today, which is the world's leading state sponsor of jihad, with total restrictions on basically every possible liberty and economic basket case, and full-on, truly totalitarian rule. It's also the 30th anniversary of Salman Rushdie's book, The Satanic Verses, leading to him having a fatwa put on his head by the supreme leader in Iran. 
Why is Iran relevant? Well, Iran took a place that was relatively dynamic at the time, imposed their theocratic creed, Islam, dominant Islam, and tried to export it throughout the world and restricted all manner of freedom, freedom of speech. You can't criticize or in any way threaten, essentially, the ruling creed there. I would suggest to you that America is free, but where progressives want to take us is to a state of anti-religious theocratic totalitarianism, where you can't have dissenting opinions or you'll get thrown out of social media or fired from your company, and where you also have control of government over every aspect of your life. It's not because you don't subscribe to Islam. It's because you don't subscribe to the state religion of progressivism. And if you dissent your livelihood, your freedom, all of it will be taken away. And those bad corrosive ideas can have an immediate impact. It destroyed Venezuela. And the same thing could happen here faster than ever before in history. This is Ben Weingarten. I've been filling in for Buck Sexton tonight. I want to thank Buck Sexton for the opportunity to fill his big shoes. And I want to thank you for spending your Friday night with me. Have a great weekend and look forward to having you on next time. Global Verification Network is the only dual certified veteran owned background investigations and vetting company. It's useful if you run a business or are looking to hire. For important decisions like these, you need Global Verification Network. Go to mygvn.com or call them at 877 695 1179. Global Verification Network is federally certified as a veteran-owned small business. It's independently certified by the National Veteran Business Development Council, which is the only minority-spend certification recognized by the Billion Dollar Roundtable. Global Verification Network is headquartered in Chicago with offices throughout the nation. They are the risk mitigation experts, and they work with companies from startups to Fortune 100s. And with Global Verification Network, you can rest assured that no data or client information is ever offshored. Plus, all employees are located throughout the United States. Visit Global Verification Network at mygvn.com. That's mygvn.com. Or call them at 877-695-1179.